This podcast series is sponsored by Havwitz, the prevailing name in beautiful wood flooring design. Gracing the surfaces of hotels, workspaces, private residences and more, Havwitz offers stunning wood flooring and cladding options in all conceivable colours and designs. Welcome to the Interior Design Business. My name is Jeff Hayward and we're recording this episode in front of a live audience at Design Central Southwest Coombe Lodge in Somerset. <laughs> Today with our two guests and my co-host Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors and past president of the British Institute of Interior Design, we're heading beyond sustainability. Sustainability is defined as the ability to be maintained at a certain rate or level. But, given the environmental damage we've already inflicted on our planet, is it sufficient to maintain the status quo at the current degraded level? In other words, is it enough to merely cause no further damage, or should we be setting our sights higher with long-term goals to restore the environmental quality of our home to pre-industrial levels? To date, we haven't even managed to slow, never mind halt, the ongoing degradation, and worryingly, we don't look like being able to do so anytime soon. But is there hope? Can interior designers do anything to help as they approach their projects? And what can they do to reverse the tide, make a net positive contribution to the health of the planet, and still deliver the buildings our society needs? Welcome to the interior design business. We are joined by environmental crusaders, Simon Myatt, brand ambassador for Havwoods Flooring, and BIID member Mel Meal from commercial workplace design specialists, Steer Design. Welcome to the show. So before we begin, can you possibly just give us each a brief introduction to yourself and to your business? Simon, do you wanna kick us off? Thank you, Susie. Uh, Simon Myatt, Havwood International. We're all about wood flooring. We're about making it easy to get a floor that the client loves, we help you with that process. So I'm Mark, brand ambassador, Havwood International. That's me. I'm Mel Meal, and I've been an interior designer all of my adult life. I started Steer Design just over 10 years ago. There's a team of five of us, and we primarily work on commercial projects, always with sustainability at the forefront. Very good, right. So according to the CIC, the Construction Industry Council's most recent assessment, the built environment and construction sectors account for 38% of global carbon emissions. It's been estimated that globally we build a city roughly the size of Paris every week. Should we simply solve the problem by not building? Simon. No. That is not sustainable, Jeff. <laughs> I thought much. Mel? Um, yeah, Simon's right. We can't just stop building. We need to change attitudes and we need to change how we're building and how we're using the resources that we already have um, and looking at ways to reuse everything that we've got, look at buildings that are already there, um, and just better ways of planning ahead with communities more so. Um, and certainly where we are doing larger infrastructure projects and we look at community-based 
uh, sites like the one in Canesham where we did a really, really large project and it involved uh, community spaces as well as spaces for the council. So what we need to do is change attitudes and really, obviously a lot of it comes down to the government, but looking at how we should be going forward with new projects and new builds. So, so what then constitutes a sustainable building? I mean, there's a lot because obviously it depends whether it's a refurbishment or a new build. And again, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder a lot of the times. But obviously there are a lot of things within sustainability because it might not just be the material or the energy. It could be the well-being, um, the economic, the social side of things. There are an awful lot of factors that, that result in a sustainable outcome. Um, and I think you can only merit that on a project by project basis. And how do you measure sustainability in a building, Simon? Quite simply, when, when putting finishes into a building, we're always looking to ensure that no damage is done, but rather we're actually giving back. What we really want when you're creating an interior is for nature to say, yay, the humans have arrived, they're going to give back. Yeah? That's, our mindset needs to be giving back to the, 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 the space, the site that we're working in, I think. And that lives beyond things like Briam and whatever else there might be as a, as a mark that you, you officially get. I think so, yeah. Um, for me, and I think for interior designers actually, something like Briam is not comprehensive enough. I was just going to say, Mel, but for some of our listeners that may not be familiar with Briam, would you just, just outline what it actually is? Yes, yeah, so it's a certification that usually you uh, have on commercial projects and it is a grade of how sustainable a building is so you can get anything up to outstanding which obviously is great um, why do I say it's not comprehensive because a lot of the interiors are not taken into consideration so I'm actually an accredited professional for LEED but we don't use that much here it's a similar thing it's used mostly in the Middle East and, say, the and that's the American system exactly yeah. now when I did it I did the interiors part of it they do residential they do commercial they do specific refurb all of the above you look at something like Briam and it count, gives you points for um, how green the carpet is and that is as far as it goes it doesn't take into consideration the stud walls the paints how it got there um, how any wastewater is used where packaging's gone um, so something like Briam is not enough and I think the responsibility lies a lot with the client and the contractor who need to go further and question themselves. I, I understand that LEED is actually becoming more widely used in the UK. Is it something you think interior designers should be actually using to assess their... Would that be your recommendation, that that's where we should be headed? Do you um, think Briam is bust? Because they've introduced Briam in use, which I also think is an interesting initiative. Yes. Do you want to talk about that and one? LEED did do that, and they've done that for a long, long time. I personally haven't seen LEED kicking off at all, and I did it well over 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Um, I think Briam need to up their game. I'm not sure where the LEED will be taking, taken on, and that's purely because we have all set the, the, the bar, if you like, in Britain, where you say, I've got Briam this, I've got Briam that. So if we change it to lead now, are those Briam ones defunct? Or either way, we need to come up on a par. Um, would could I they be it? grandfathered yes. in in some way, perhaps? Perhaps, yeah. exactly. I'd, I'd recommend it if you want to learn and if you want to have a better understanding and go further than Briam, because it's made me question clients and contractors and say, this is not enough. 
Mm. You know, you can't just do a Briam outstanding building and put in furniture for China. But the other thing is that the, the, Briam, the Briam stops at the point at which it gets signed off, whereas the, what I liked about the in-use certification is, uh, it's a good example where you might have a building that you don't put air conditioning in because that obviously is not terribly sustainable, but then the tenants move in and the first thing they do is they buy lots of freestanding, floor-standing air conditioning units and stick the pipes out the windows. You know, at that point, is that building still Briam? Mm. Exactly, and no. No. Um, so yes, you're right. That does need to be a factor because, like I say, you can, you can put anything in after afterwards. I mean, the, the problem, unfortunately, doesn't even stop with new builds and energy use, which is what we've just been touching on. Existing buildings, and this is where you were talking about, you know, and I think you do a lot of this, they're being refitted all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's been estimated that 10 million tonnes of furniture is sent to landfill every year in the EU alone. So what should designers be doing to combat that? We have to always argue it, always. We have to put forward ideas, and we are capable of this. We are creative. We should be able to incorporate existing furniture, whether that's as is or for it to be refurbished. And we should be saying, hey, look, we can save you money as well as um, you know, logistics on site of getting new things. It saves you lead time. But also, that's a massive win, sustainability-wise, to keep certain things that you've got. It is up to us right at the beginning to say, let's look at what you already have and go from there. Um, I'm looking at a project at the moment for University of West of England, and they are very, very keen on keeping what they have moving forward and only buying new what they need. And Simon, you talked about going beyond where a, a sort of neutral line where we think sustainability might be at the moment. Do you want to just talk a little bit more about that? When, when you look at Briam and these other, some of these other platforms, fantastic in what they've achieved in one sense, but it's, it's like a neutral baseline. It's like, it's, 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 it's a measurement of seeing, seeing how less bad we can do. And what we need to be doing is going back up into the trajectory of giving back, being regenerative, being part of nature, co-evolving with natural systems. And kind of, as I said, where nature says, yes, brilliant, the humans are giving us back. Because for so long it's been so imbalanced, where we've been taking, taking, taking from the planet, we want to be looking for every way we can to, rather than measuring ourselves against doing less bad, we want to start doing more good, being regenerative, giving back, co-evolving with nature. Mm. Okay. Any examples from nature that, that you could point to? Actually, I, I tripped across one not long ago of... of um, Eucalyptus trees. Now, I'm Australian, so I, you know, I love a gum tree, but they are used in Portugal to create, because they grow so quickly, um, to, for paper production. But the trouble is they've escaped out into the wider environment in Portugal, and they, they take so much water. They're so thirsty, these trees, that they, and nothing grows underneath them because they drop eucalyptus oil and everything gets poisoned. So they have this real problem now where all along the Douro Valley, they've got, they've got invas this invasive species they really need to be aggressively taking these rot-wretched things out, even though they're beautiful trees. So you could argue that maybe that's not sustainable, but it's not sustainable to leave them there. Mm. This, is, this is where, I mean, there's, there's two, two analogies I often refer to. One is the plant world, one's animals. I mean, ants, for example. I knew you were going to bring up ants. <laughs> I love ants. Ants are cool, okay? You think about a colony of ants, okay? So they're, they're there underground, they're building. 
they're building, they're designers, they're building. They build homes, they build food storage facilities, they've got farms, they're growing their crops, they've got cemeteries, they've got hospitals, they've got everything. And they're not taking anything from nature. All they're doing is giving back because what they actually do is they break down the waste of other species. Okay, you see a poly ant creeping along and it, the other ants will come and carry it away and take it to the ant hospital where they're administered ant medicine. That is for real, all from nature. And so when you look at that colony of ants, you look at that little ant mound, they are healthy, reproducing, completely sustainable, more than sustainable, they're being regenerative, they're helping to um, sustain the soil. We want to be like ants. Yeah. And there's the trees as well, but then it depends how long we want me to go on for. Well, <laughs> I was going to bring Mel in. Are, are, are there any inspirations from nature that you... Yeah, I'm, I mean, there are loads. And I know that we've discussed about this. Um, but again, I mean, looking at where we're building and how we're building, we do need to look at the ecological side of it and what are we doing in and around that so it does matter that we are giving back to not only society and the economic, but also um, the natural surroundings. And we were, when you told me about the ant story originally, we were talking also about hedgerows and how we are clearing a lot of land. And although we have a lot of green in our lovely island here, we're cutting off so many hedgerows and taking them all away that we're losing flood defences, we're losing habitats for smaller wildlife that the eye doesn't see like you ants um but it is destroying those kinds of things exactly um and there are a lot of things that can be done there are some buildings in london that uh, rent out some of their roof space for beehives so that's one thing obviously there are lots of ways that you can save waste so by using gray water so capturing rainwater to use that to flush your loos etc there are a lot of things you can do to not affect nature that doesn't impact it. But also there are lots of ways that you can give back, even if it is middle of, middle of, excuse me, middle of London, there are ways you can do it. You know, I, th I think every single refurb and new build can give back. So moving the discussion on a bit, can you describe what we mean when we talk about the circular economy? Because I think this is where we're heading with this. Yeah, so essentially, um, you the circular economy, if you, for example, take a chair, um, chair goes into manufacture, um, it gets used in its lifetime, and then at the end of its lifetime, it gets broken down, and the idea is that those materials go back into the, the this circular design, if you like, rather than going to waste. There might, might be some byproducts to waste. So my issue always with that theory is that the problem with, let's take a chair for example, if I tell you I've made a chair out of timber, um, some linen, there's a bit of foam, there'll be glue and a little bit of metal perhaps. And I could tell you I've used some post and pre-consumer recycled goods um, and nearly all of it, say 95% of it can be recycled you think, brilliant, I'm going to specify it's going straight in. The problem is that physically and logistically, who is recycling that at the end of the life? Because it's not the person you've bought the chair from. It's not going to be the client. And it's not going to be Bristol Waste, your local tip. Because what you have to do is take apart all of those materials, then sort them through, probably clean them, and then the recycling process starts. So now what we're pushing manufacturers to do is actually ask, how is it constructed? How does it come apart if we want to change that chair in future or at the end of its life to get it recycled and reuse those materials? Otherwise, 
that chair is just going back to the dump. So that circular design theory, and I call it a theory, actually a lot of the time just doesn't happen. It, it doesn't manifest because that item cannot be taken apart. How does that stack up for wood, Simon? Yeah, well, I was going to say, well, on like for, for furniture for a minute, just because we're talking about the chair and we're looking at the chair, that I think where, where the challenge is, and certainly for wood flooring as well, we see this, where the challenge is, is we're calling it a theory because it's a theory, because it's all ready to go, the system's ready to run. We are encouraging designers to um, look at what the use, reuse and reuse and reuse life is so that items can be reborn and reborn. Mm. Yep. But the, the break in the chain at the moment for us in the wood flooring industry is actually at the point of um, decommissioning a building, or you might want to call it the demolition or refurbishment. I feel as though there needs to be a mechanism that incentivizes the main contractors or the dem demolition contractors mm. to actually be interested at that point in making sure they connect back to the specification of what was supposed to happen to that product afterwards. We're yeah. working on that. And the, it, as I say, it, within the wood flooring industry, we're, we're actually ready to go with it. But we've got to join these dots and join this. Mm. It is really hard because you're not the only manufacturer that says this, and it's very frustrating. So we could put in our specification at the end of the carpet or the wood life or fabric or anything that it is, it can go back to this manufacturer yeah. to be reused, recycled in their own factory. Does that happen? No. And it's down to us designers that you know, speak up on site and say, where is that carpet going? Contractor will go, skip. In the skip, yeah. And then we will say, no, you know, my rep can take it. They'll come and get it for free. It'll save space in the skip. And they go, oh, really? That's amazing. You're like, yeah, yeah. isn't that good? And, and factories to do that are running. Yeah. Because the, where the wood flooring's manufactured, all the offcuts, all the sides, all mm. the pieces that come off from the waste from the production facility, it goes back round. And that's, it's ready yeah. to go. So manufacturers know, designers know contractors aren't getting it. So some sort of incentivization for contractors is a big... I wonder yeah. if it needs to be that. Yeah. Mm. Well, I, I mean, in, in most of our buildings now, we're capturing this information in our O&M manuals that we all produce. Mm. The trouble is, I suppose, that does anybody ever actually look at them? Exactly. And if, there's, if a building has a 50-year life, you know, what's happened to the O&M manual? You know, has it mm. got binned or, you know, has the disc got lost or the computer got chucked out or, you know, it's horrifyingly frequent that at that point, commercially, a roll-on, roll-off skip becomes the easiest option, yeah. and then there's pressure for speed and time on site. And yeah, yeah, it takes time and money to split up that chair or all those fabrics on site, um, materials on site, and go right. This has to go there. This has to go there. Contractor hasn't got time for that at no. all. No. Okay. What are the loops in a circular economy, and what do they illustrate? Oh, gosh. How long have we got? Well, yeah. um, but I mean, so the one we've been talking about just now really is the outer loop, isn't it? That's the recycle loop. But there are there are circles of virtue within the circular economy that you touched on. Yes, yeah. So, for example, there are little loops. Um, one particular um, brand that I've mentioned before, Orange Box. So they're, they're in South Wales. They produce commercial furniture and they have stopped using glue. So they will produce their furniture with either tongue and groove or um, metal like Z-hooks, things like that. Anything so that um, as a commercial client, you can buy one of their products. And if you change your brand, as marketing departments love to do every five years, um, they can take bits apart, give it back to Orange Box, um, reproduce bits, change the shapes. And they've done it on purpose so that there are these small little loops inside of that 
bigger circle um, where they can close it off a bit. But it can, at a more basic level, it could be anything just like reupholstering something. You know, if, yeah. if, it's, if it's worn along the leading edge, don't chuck it out, just change the upholstery, change exactly, the fabric. Yeah. And we have looked at that recently. So actually I've looked at a couple of projects. Um, the only downside to that is, so we were working on Burgess Salmon in Bristol. We looked at reupholstering with a shop just off of North Street in Bedminster. And it cost the same to reupholster, according to their new brand colours, these chairs, as it was to buy new. And I said to them, the problem you've got there is you're producing carbon and energy to reupholster that. Uh, compared to buying the new, it doesn't seem right. So what I suggested was buy the new as you want it, because it's not going to always be right enough, and donate that, which is what they did. So you have got this other problem where reupholstering or remaking, reusing can actually be the same cost and people will just go, I'm not going to bother. So there's pros and cons. And you mentioned something just you touched on, I think. What is the difference between then post and pre-consumer recycled materials? Um, So you get a lot of recycled content in anything. Uh, Pre-consumer materials is anything that would come off as primary source before it's gone to you so uh, let's go back to the chair again chair is being made in the factory we need to chop a bit off of the wood to make the shape of the legs that little bit of wood that's chopped off is pre-consumer it's not touched the consumer yet that is still primary material that can be chopped down and used for um, padding or heating the factory something like that so that's pre-consumer recycled content and post-consumer obviously is once that chair has gone to the consumer. And it's been used. And Yeah, it's been used, it comes back to that factory and then they can recycle it and that's post-consumer. So Simon, you must have lots of, of pre-consumer and post actually, but pre particularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, mostly <clears throat> mostly would be pre-consumer. In fact, I'm just, well, well, well um, Mel speaking, I'm kind of thinking it through and I think it pretty much all is. Yeah. Because of the process. Obviously with timber flooring, it's all very early on. It starts off with the forest and the trees. And what about carbon offsetting? Because there's a lot of people who do plant trees to offset what they're doing. I mean, how how good is that? Is it cheating? Is it a value? What do you think? Well, I think we've got differing opinion on here, which could all get quite interesting. Um, no, in simple terms, a tree is the lungs of the earth. It's breathing in carbon and giving off oxygen. And for as long as we're sustainable, sustainable farming of trees, which you'll often hear me talk about, sustainable, responsible farming of trees, where we're ensuring there's always more and more and more trees, not less and less and less. We're absorbing more carbon, and therefore it's making the the carbon footprint of the project or the factory or whatever, whichever way we're looking at it, however it's being measured, it has a positive effect, a good effect. However, Mel? However. It's not just trees, is it? It's not just trees. So that is brilliant. Let's all plant a tree. Um, We know that forests will obviously have a bigger impact than, say, one tree in your garden. If you take your garden, for example, um, having a multitude of level of things is far, far better than just a tree. So having bushes and flowers and things like that and hedgerows that I've mentioned. Um, Carbon offsetting, yes, I think it's a cheat. I think, though, that's the attitude. People do it to cut themselves some slack. Um, and if you do that as well as practising good, sustainable you know, practices, then brilliant. That is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But I think there is a wider picture and that we need to look beyond just planting trees. There's, there's more to it. 
There was a statistic, I think, again, it might have come from Orange Box, where the amount of embedded carbon in one of their chairs, do you know the stats? I can't remember, but there was more. There was more embedded carbon in one of their recycled chairs mm. than there was actually in a tree, yeah. which I thought was was really interesting. And of course, you don't know how long a tree is going to be there because someone can come along and chop it down, you know, as in the case with the the, the paper trees in in Portugal. I mean, it feels to me like like the circular economy is something, but actually we kind of need a, a mindset that's circular economy plus. Absolutely, because we do need it at home for ourselves as well as commercially. So I think. Yeah, you can't, you can't just deal with it just as that one circle theory. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I was just thinking, I, think, I guess we need to itemise the components that will make the circular economy plus, as you're calling it. Mm. Itemise, understand those components, break them out, make them commercially viable and attractive, and I think that's possible. And then bring that together, and we may be hatching a very interesting plan. Yeah, but the, the difficulty is that the, the stuff that we're then manufacturing has to be of quality that allows it to stay in the cycle for longer. I mean, part of the issue, I think, is that most second-hand furniture, all this stuff that ends up in landfill, was originally low-cost, cheaply made junk. Yeah. So, I mean, no one actually wants it in their home or their work environments. So just how do we go about making or breaking, rather, that kind of use-discard cycle? That's the thing as well, isn't it? It's this society that we've come to that's very disposable in every single way, in our, in our food and our furniture, and where our nans, say, would have repaired a sock. I mean, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> there are limits. Um, I do put them out to recycle, obviously. Um, but we need to stop thinking that life is disposable. Well, I mean, we're, we're going back to the, the clothing thing, which I think is interesting, where, you know, the, the, the mantra is we're all supposed to be now shopping in the back of our own wardrobes. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, you have to have a wardrobe worth shopping in. If it's all Primark, you know, it's yeah. not going to work. Yes. I think it's tough because interior designers, the, the first part of the job is to make an interior look beautiful, functional, make people want to be there and enjoy it. And yet you're having to change that mindset to think about sustainability and all the complications around that. I mean, where where does that balance lie in your job? It is really hard. And I think the other thing is, obviously, you're always going to be constrained by budget. And unfortunately, as we always say, interiors and the lighting is, is the, the first thing to come out because the architect will have specified the fancy brick. That's in. And then when it gets down the line, you know, the cost consultant says, oh, there's nothing left. Sorry, Mel, can you cut off like, I don't know, half a mil? Yeah, sure. Hello, China. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really, really hard and you have to make some tough decisions. But I go back to saying that you need to get the client and contractor listening at the very, very start of the project. Um, And we've often worked with cost consultants at the start to say, you cannot reduce this, this and this, because they will do it. And this could be on a very small residential scale to a multi-million pound commercial scale. They will do it because what they're doing is at the start, they're building the primary aspect of this project. And they're going, yeah, and I want this and I want that, I want the other. And it's not until the end, until they say, oh, we've spent it all. And that's what happens. So... There needs to be more foresight, without a doubt. Um, And it's only when you get the clients who are investing in that foresight from the beginning who say, I want to truly be sustainable, that we can protect the budget and protect the design and Mm. the ethos of trying to remain sustainable. It's it's the fact that I think a building is not just a building, it's the contents as well. You, You know, a building without the contents is actually 
just a space it's useless mm. so you're right unless you can actually kind of push for that but in a way that comes back to the the point of the project in which interior designers become involved and often you know we it's a common problem that we all have that we we're brought in too late yeah you know the the, the, the specifications already done you know the things out for tender yeah. you know that cost has been fixed and you're right we do get the the thin the, end, the thin end of the wedge on the projects you're working on simon are you seeing clients taking more of an interest in sustainability yeah it's, it's definitely uh I'm, I'm really encouraged to see it's become more and more visible that um, people understand the importance of ensuring that what they have in their building has got, has got, is, is sustainable. But when we say sustainable, what does it mean? And it's got, it starts to have a value to them and it actually helps to hold from a price point, purely commercial point of view, helps to hold the price point if we know that we're walking away from disposability towards reusability. And that's when people start saying, how often can I sand it? Can I sand and relacquer? Can we reuse this? Can I repurpose this in our new building? Our lease changes in five years' time. And if we can start, we start products where the answer to those questions is yes. Mm. It all starts getting quite positive. Mm. Okay. So we we touched on um, Orange Box, but are there any other sort of innovative businesses out there that are kind of thinking in this way that you could? Yeah, there's plenty because there are people like Orange Box setting you know setting that path and what I've experienced with colleagues certainly in the commercial industry is that um, we are no longer accepting companies that either can't answer our questions about sustainability or who are not making a good enough impact and we're therefore moving to the ones that are and those that are left behind are seeing that and I think for interior designers, how we can really make a difference is by making those choices. And if we find a manufacturer that uh, chooses not to or just doesn't make good sustainable choices, then you don't use them. Go and find somebody else. It's only up to us who will ask questions and push boundaries and tell our clients the right thing to do. That is how attitudes will change. And yes, there are lots and lots of new innovative products coming out, which we, is great. We actually featured someone on one of our previous podcasts. There's a lady from the Haynes Collection, and uh, she's doing an amazing... So how many people in the audience here are, are, are domestic, you know, private client designers rather than commercial? Are you mostly working... Yeah, so obviously a lot of what we've been talking about today has been commercial design, but um, the, the, the rules apply to, to the other projects as well. Haynes Collection will do things like they will pick up... If someone has four rolls of wallpaper, they'll pick it up. Um, if someone's got five metres of fabric left, you know, so they, they pick up waste from curtain makers and, um, you know, contractors' sites. You can phone them up and say, I've got two rolls of wallpaper, five metres of this, whatever, a box of tiles, whatever it is. And you can go onto their website and they've got some amazing stuff and they sell it very inexpensively. So you can get that really, really, really expensive luxe wallpaper to do your feature wall with for, you know, 25% of the cost as if you'd bought it from the manufacturer. So there are lots of kind of services like that emerging, which I think are really worth pushing and championing. Really Not good. enough of them yet, but you know, yeah. she's doing a, a one-woman crusade. And, and Simon, what are the certifications that designers should look for, particularly around flooring, but there are, there are other certifications around as well for other pieces of furniture, aren't there? Yes, there are. Yeah, well, certainly. I mean, the, the, the most, the most um, very respected and probably the best known is the FSC certification, Forestry Stewardship Council, which is it's worth understanding that with the FSC certification, it is actually not about the wood itself. 
It's actually about the forest, it's about protecting the forest. Originally, FSC certification was about protecting indigenous people, indigenous people's rights, customary ownership, land, that sort of thing. It was actually to stop poaching. Fundamentally, FSC was originally to stop poaching. But the, 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 the hoops that you need to jump through in order to be FSC certified mean that they it checks in on all the other sustainability aspects as well, which is why it's become such an important certification. The gold standard. It's the yeah. gold standard, exactly. And I suppose also with FSC, it's worth, as I say, it's worth knowing that it's not about the wood, it's about the forests, but also for a project to be FSC certified, it's about a chain of custody. Mm. Each invoicing point, the organisation has to be FSC certified for the project to come through as FSC mm. certified. There is also plenty of others. I mean, there's PEFC, which focuses on um, responsible forestry. Um, there's the Cradle to Cradle, which of course is all about circularity. And of course, there's the Half Seal, which you know we were talking yeah. about earlier. Yeah. Um, Half Seal is something that we've set up ourselves, where we look at, we, we kind of do a deep dive into all of these aspects. And we're, so we're looking at the legality of the sourcing of the timber. We're looking mm -hmm. at the sustainability of it, the, the origin of it and where it's come from. And then looking at the stewardship for water and soil yeah. and air pollution and so on, before we'll even bring that product, before we'll even bring that manufacture process to, to, to the market. So there are lots of certification processes. They've all got different focuses, generally speaking, but fundamentally, if it's a certification process, sustainability is at the heart of it. Mm. Okay. I'd say FSC is probably so well-renowned that there's nobody I know that would specify timber that is not FSC. Well, it's, it's copy of paper, it's toilet paper, it's wood flooring, it's furniture, it's, yeah. it's everything, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Oh, I didn't realise it covered all those products as well. So it's, it's disposable paper as well everything. as... Yeah, interesting. How important is it to source locally? That's a tricky one. <laughs> Who's going oh. first? Go on, you It's so tricky because you can't always. That's... That's the fact. Um, I did a school in Wales where we did larch timber as the cladding on the outside and they were absolutely adamant it had to be Welsh larch. And we were like, but it's nowhere near as good as from the continent. Nowhere near. It is not going to live as long. The colour won't even be as good. It won't be as waterproof. Don't care. It's got to be Welsh. So in it went and sure enough, 10... 15 years later, it's not it's good. coming off. So that is not sustainable. If you're going to come up with a product, a product that's only going to last you, say, 15, 20 years, that is a massive bit of material on that building compared to what should be 100 years for good timber that's come from the continent, you have to weigh it up. It is not enough that you have said, it's come down the road, so that's great. So, you know. How did you know that the Welsh Larch was? Because I wouldn't have known that. Just research, simple research. Um, you know, it's, it's like anything, isn't it? Um, there are admittedly some pieces of furniture that we will, or even finishes that we would specify that are not British made. But again, we have to look at the whole story of it. Where is it coming from? What's the quality of it? Will it last better than the British uh, version or if we're getting something say from Scotland and not from down the road in Bristol something like that you have to look at the whole the whole body of it you know I, I joke about China but the majority of our metal work comes from there for a lot of pieces of furniture and when that's coming in bulk obviously that is the most efficient way to do it so I joke about that but you you do have to look at everything that makes up that 
thing that you're specifying. It's an enormous responsibility. So, yes, it is. And Mel, isn't a designer's <laughs> life complicated enough? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but then if you're going to be responsible for massive projects, even small ones that are domestic, if you want to change attitudes and be sustainable, then you really ought to do it all the way through. Mm. It is not enough to say, um, well, that one's made from recycled content, so that's it, job done. Go on, Simon. There, yeah, well, it's, it's fascinating because there there's two sides to this. Um, and one side is that, so there was a very famous architect who's in London, he owns a farm in Devon, so nearest this part of town, and um, he, this, he wanted wood flooring for his home, fantastic, and then he said he was sourcing the trees. And you kind of go, okay. And then you look into what does sustainable really mean? And he owned the land, he owned the trees, he, was, he had a fantastic um, forestry scheme on his own land. And sure enough, the trees came from his property. They went to a local facility to be manufactured. And um, we worked with some of our suppliers and some of our finishers. We brought the, brought the project to the table and it was beautiful. And guess what? Not certified by anything. Mm. But we checked it out and it was all very, very, very locally sourced and very sustainable. Mm. However, if we then stand and talk to a designer anywhere in the country who's saying that they would love to have locally sourced timber, I'm never going to say yes. Yeah. Because if, if we said yes to locally sourced, locally sourced timber, we would have no trees left long ago, which is why we need to think local. For, for us in the um, wood flooring industry or in the, in the timber industry, we need to think of local actually as being probably European, mm. Europe, which yeah. is why very passionate about European oak. Not only, not only is there millions, I was going to say, of hectares of very, very good quality oak, which is all obviously responsibly farmed. Um, so we're talking about um, Poland, Germany, Lithuania, Ukraine. There's, there's lots and lots of oak in Ukraine, which at the moment I'm we can't bunch. access. Can't get it. Can't get it. No. But you know what? <laughs> Don't specify ply. Yeah, well, this the eucalyptus supply is coming back in now. That's fantastic. But the, but the interesting thing is that when you then look at that, you look at where our resources of, of sustainably farmed, responsibly farmed mm. trees and wood is, and where we where we where it's coming from, you then suddenly say, hang on, yeah, locally sourced mm. here in Europe, not bringing timber all the way from China. And by the way, if you take bring wood, bring oak from other parts of the world where we're not entirely sure which hillside it came from, there are fast growing oak trees that are very yeah. soft. Yeah. And three years from now, there'll be damaged floors. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, I'm passionate about this, as yeah. you know. But you're, but you're right. Even you know, in soft floorings as well, lots of them come from the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And we would consider that, consider that to be local because we're not using US carpets. Um, similarly, metalwork, a lot of it is done, um, metalwork and furniture, in southern Europe, so Spain and Italy and the likes. It's not happening here, so... You know, let's, like you say, look locally on our continent. So is there any hope out there or is it all doom and gloom? I think, going back to Simon's point, though, about giving an incentive to contractors, I think a lot of it comes down to the government. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can um, encourage our clients and we can ask the contractors to do all these jobs, but at the end of the day, we can shout from the rooftops. But unless there is a deal to be done they're simply not going to get on board unless their heart is in it. Bring Sorry, back the code for sustainable gloom. homes kind of yes. thing. Yes. Yes. yes, I remember that. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's talk about 
being inspired. What's really inspired you working to a kind of beyond sustainability agenda now? Probably making the clients happier. Um, there is a massive difference between the clients that choose to and the clients that don't. Um, and I appreciate a lot of the time it comes down to budget. Uh, you've got a lot of obviously government funded ones, so schools and hospitals that have what they've got. Um, but where those that can and do choose to have a far more sustainable project, they ultimately are happier because mm. in turn you get staff that are in a beautiful interior that have far better materials, far better interior design um, and reuse materials and that, yeah, obviously they're a lot happier. Yeah, it's emotionally rewarding. Yeah. yeah. I think essentially as well, when clients are telling their employees that they're doing that, it's about communication. Mm. Um, and staff obviously really respect that. Simon? Yeah, well, for me, I think it was the, the sheer disappointment for ourselves and their clients of realising, just a few years ago now, that there's been too much focus on disposable products. And we are now looking at a product which has been used for five years and is now weary and tired. And then the encouragement and the, the invigoration, I present CPDs three or four days a week, and afterwards we have a Q&A session, we're just standing talking, and for probably about four years, I think it was almost every presentation, a question would come up about, oh, that's because it's normally we're talking about sustainability or regeneration or about sustainable forestry or blah, and the, the question that would come up is, so is there hope, is there a way forward here? You know, what, what should we do? And the answer is yes. Where we've been going thinner and thinner and thinner, the lamella's getting thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, now we're going back the other way and the price isn't going up at the same rate and we're now specifying floors that you can reuse mm. and reuse and reuse and we can, we can write it into the specification, um, how to refinish this, what to do with it. And it, do you know what is really, really fabulous is we're now seeing floors in their second life because a client's relocated taking the floor with them. Yeah. And wow. it can be, the, there's product that can be refinished, reworked, remachined mm. if we walk away from disposability. Yeah. Okay, Susie, top that. Okay, well, I say I've, I've, got, I've got one of the most inspiring sort of beyond sustainable practice that I've ever witnessed. I was terribly lucky to be taken on a, um, a four-day study tour by Swedish Wood years ago. And we were taken to see all stages of the, of the, the timber growing how it's grown, how it's harvested, and they have they have millions of these tiny, tiny, tiny little trees in polytunnels, and they have a problem that there's a beetle that lives in the soil that climbs up to the top of the trees and nips the little shoot off the top of the tree, and the tree gets sick and dies. So they used to spray them, and they decided that they couldn't continue to do that because obviously it was poisoning the soil and all, all sorts of all sorts of reasons. Um, so they came up with this conveyor belt system. So they take these pallets of these teeny weeny little trees who are about two inches high. And they're all jiggling along on their little, and then they, they, they feed along this, and they basically tar and feather them. So they go into a, into a machine, and what looks for all the world like copy decks gets dumped all over these trees. So these poor little trees are just covered in this white gloop. And they come out there, you can, you can almost hear them going, puh, puh, as they come out the other <laughs> side. And then they come along this conveyor belt and they go into another tunnel and lo and behold, loads of sand gets dumped on them. So now they're covered in glue and they're covered in sand and they're completely rigid. And then they plant them out. And what happens is the beetles can't climb on the sand. Their little feet won't stick on the sand, so they fall off. So they can't nibble the tops of the trees. So they plant them out, and by the time the trees continue to grow, by the time they've grown sufficiently, all this coating that's on them breaks off and falls away, but they're big enough to not be nibbled anymore. 
That's amazing. Isn't it brilliant? It's it. genius. Honestly, the most inspiring thing I've ever, ever Susie, seen. Can I use that? Of course. I'll mention your name. With my pleasure. No, Swedish Wood. Give credit to Swedish Wood. Yeah. That's cool. That's brilliant. Oh, yeah. There we go. A round of applause for everybody. I think it's been brilliant. Thank you, Simon, and thank you, Mel. That's been absolutely fantastic. And uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our audience has learned a lot today. So thank you for sharing with us. Yeah, it's so much food for thought, really. It's, it's, yeah, we all have to change what we're doing. Thanks also to Design Central Southwest for hosting us here today in Blagden. And a final thank you to our audience. I think you should all give yourselves another round of applause. Why not? <laughs> Please do listen to the podcast. Uh, you can find us on any podcast platform that you might listen to. And we are on social media at Interior Design Business Pod. So please share feedback, get in touch. Um, we do talk to people and we love hearing from our audience. The Interior Design Business is a Wildwood Plus production. Thank you for being here.